welcome to episode seven of the Polis Podcast. I'm John. And I'm Ben. And today we're going to be going through the second half of the book Walkable City. And we're going to be going through Jeff Speck's 10 Steps of Walkability. Is that what it's called? Yeah, 10 Steps of Walkability. Yep, 10 Steps. A good 10-step program. So he breaks this down into four sections, which is the useful walk, the safe walk, the comfortable walk, and the interesting walk. Uh Within each of these sections there are multiple steps. So I'm just going to run through real quick the structure of it, and then we'll kind of go through and talk about some of the things that we found interesting about them. Step one is put cars in their place. Step two is mix the uses. Step three is get the parking right. There's a lot of reform and parking policy, as I mentioned, that I Uh think is important. Step four is let transit work. And then you get into the safe walk, which is step five, protect the pedestrian. Step six, welcome bikes. And then into the comfortable walk, step seven, shape the cities, step eight, plant trees, and then into the interesting walk, which is make friendly, unique faces and pick your winners. So I guess let's start at the top with put cars in their place. What were your takeaways from the first section there? Yeah, I mean, if you've listened to our podcast at all, I think we've been saying this the whole time, which is essentially cars have been prioritized way too much and they need to be deprioritized that's like that's basically his entire argument and he lays out beautifully all of the reasons why and why it's beneficial to do so and importantly he uses the the phrase put cars in their place he doesn't say eliminate cars or take cars away here yes that is essential but he says that they need to have their own place that they serve a function that they're useful but they have to be in a specific place that fits in with the rest of the transit options of a city. And I, I think that was like sort of my biggest takeaway. Like, oh, mm. when I was first reading this book, this was kind of the first one where I was like, oh, wait, yeah, induced demand is a thing. Right. And building more roads is not going to get us out of traffic woes. We actually have to think about this in a completely different way, meaning we have to challenge the primacy of cars. Yeah, I think this was the first time I actually came across the concept of induced demand. And It was a fascinating chapter. I think the first part, the useful walk, those first four steps really do make up the core of the book and the most compelling arguments, especially for people that are opposed to this whole concept of walkability and trying to make urban spaces more pedestrian friendly and all of that. And this one for putting cars in their place. Yes, I I think you're right. It, It is that thread that unifies most of what we talk about or a lot of what we talk about on the podcast. One of the things that I found interesting in this chapter, beyond even induced demand, which is a very interesting counterintuitive concept, is when he talks about the relation between property values in a city and investment in highways around a city or in the vicinity of a city. There's this very neat inverse relationship decade on decade for the last 50, 60 years, where in any given year or period of years where there's a lot of investment in highways nearby a city, property values in that city kind of level off. They don't rise very much. If there's not very much investment in increasing highway mileage in the area, property values start to rise again. And there's this very clean inverse relationship that he notes through a lot of the research that he's looked at. Obviously, it kind of makes intuitive sense once you think about it, because if you're investing a lot in highways, it allows for suburbs to grow and the urban core doesn't need to grow. Mm -hmm. Like we have this huge influx of people constantly going into cities. But if you can just build suburbs, they don't actually go into the middle of the city. They just go outside of it. Without that highway investment, there's more of an incentive to push into the city. But it really does underscore, as a lot of the things in these first four steps do, that 
road policy very much affects government revenues in the city and very much affects the economic life in the city. If you want your houses to start being worth more and you want property in the city to be worth more, building a ton of highways is not the way to do that. Yeah, right. And when I was reading this, what I was thinking of was, and he didn't necessarily even connect to this, I don't think, but you know, if you have like a downtown sort of core area and then sort of a, the initial ring suburb that is still within the city limits, right. if you have that specific area, right? then you build a freeway to it and to other suburbs, then you're essentially bringing these people in from suburbs who pay their taxes, except for maybe their business taxes, right. in another place. And you can sort of shuttle them in really easily. Shuttle them in and out, I should say, really easily. And hmm. that is a huge part of the reason why there has been such a disinvestment in cities, just sort of quote-unquote naturally, because the city and the surrounding areas have subsidized this giant concrete road to leave the place of their work and leave all these other people and essentially pay taxes in another area, which is fine. It's your prerogative to choose where you want to live and where you want to pay taxes. But that's a consequence, a direct consequence of the primacy of cars is you now have an entire chunk of a city without a large enough tax base, or at least I would say a relative tax base, right? You would think that in a downtown there would be people living, but there really aren't that many. Yeah. And what's crazy about that is that if you think about it, it's almost like if you think about it geographically, it's like a pockmark. I, I don't think you would want to live in a place where one part of the city is terrible, right? True. It also lended itself like in the 80s to the ideas of cities are bad places because of the people who live in them. And therefore, we can justify over policing or the war on drugs. Basically, those issues are self-made rather than understanding that this was a system that while some of the issues may have been self-made, it definitely live within this system of disinvestment, which as all the studies show, increased crime and increased transience. And that becomes its own downward spiraling circle. When I was reading this, I was just thinking of all the external consequences of simply building a freeway into the middle of the city, allowing people to come in and out and understanding that like, so when he gave this sort of this uh, this statistic that actually building that freeway decreases the amount of money that the city had. I was just like, yeah, of course, of course, this this makes sense. Yeah. How could I not have realized that before? This is the issue. It does start to be obvious once you think right, about it. Right, right. And honestly, I, I, I see, you know, urban urban planning and, and transportation and things as a part of a way to combat the forces of inequality within a city. And like, this is mm. one of those things that, that it sort of glossed over it. You know, there's no like bright light on this is a reason why there is inequality. Right. Well, and to add to the point or to restate the point, I guess, exactly what you're saying, if there's a limited amount of capital, which we know there is, to invest in a given place, right? Let's take any city you want, like take Dallas, and you say there's a limited amount of capital that the private sector are going to invest in new construction and buildings in this city. If you build highways and make it easier and cheaper for them to mm. build further out of the city and build suburbs, that money is directly drawn away from investing in new construction within the city. Mm -hmm. So not only you don't have the government necessarily pouring money in the center of cities, but you also have this natural departure of capital because there are more promising investment opportunities outside of the city. Right, because um, that's, that's where the people with money are going. Exactly. Yeah. And so you do see that it's kind of a multifaceted effect that all pushes in the same direction. And the more you invest in that sort of thing, the more you provide the opportunity to degrade cities. Right. 
to sort of connect that with something else he said in this chapter I thought was super interesting was he kind of railed against the Department of Transportation, a U.S. state Department of Transportation, I should clarify, yes, yes. saying that a lot of times there isn't local control of state highways or like interstates. And this is an issue because the idea of the planners for those DOTs is essentially is thinking we want to move people as fast as possible, as easily as possible down this road. And if yeah. that one state highway is your downtown, they don't listen to the local needs and design the street around essentially where it is in the town. They build this highway that looks the same whether you're 20 miles outside of the town or if you're right in downtown. And to me, that kind of sets the stage for the rest of the city. Because if your downtown looks like that, then to get to your downtown, you want to take a car rather than walk. And yeah. downtown is the area to go in a city. And I, I'm thinking of smaller and medium-sized cities now, because in larger cities, they've kind of changed those because there aren't a lot of interstates necessarily that go through major cities, I, I assume. But it's also that the smaller cities don't have the clout, right? Those are the people that are generally going to be right. marginalized. Right. And having their communities kind of ripped apart so that they can't function cohesively. Right. They can't really do anything about that. There's no remedy because you're right. Their control is kind of taken away and more remote. Right. Yeah. Great, great point. Totally, totally. And I mean, I think that really does get into one of the extremely difficult things that is increasingly difficult as society becomes more complicated is that so much of what makes something work well when you have an extremely complicated system is making sure that the right people are in control of the right things mm -hmm. and making sure that where power is allocated is not destructive because when the wrong people have power and the wrong incentives are in place you get all sorts of perverse outcomes like what you're talking about where you put a eight lane highway right through the middle of a downtown and tear apart a little town yeah agreed there is one other section in this chapter that i kind of wanted to get to just one quick last thing about yeah. induced demand I, I talked a little bit on the first episode of the show about how this podcast i think could be used or I would hope people can listen to it and start thinking about ways that they can change their own communities. Right. One of the things, actually, probably the number one complaint that any urban planner gets or anyone who's ever gone to a community meeting gets when we talk about changing the city is this will negatively affect my traffic. Mm. And that is like a huge, huge pun intended roadblock to any sort of change uh. in a city. And I find that, especially when it comes to freeways and people want to say, no, we just need to widen the freeway because traffic is so bad, we just need to widen the freeway. Yeah. If you want to find any sort of actionable chapter, maybe besides the parking one, this one about induced demand, how insane it is in the sense that it's not intuitive. I routinely use this to talk to people about why we should not actually widen freeways. And I think that right. this part's really important when it comes to the, the political ramifications of how do we change people's minds in order to better our cities and our regions. So I just wanted to like put that out there and say that that if you read anything in this book, um, I definitely would recommend this the part about induced demand here uh, and the parking part that we'll get to in a sec. But. Yeah, it's true. And you're right to mention about it being extremely actionable because some of the things in this book and some of the things when you're thinking about urban planning generally are difficult and they take a lot of different parties to kind of agree and move forward together. Some of these regulatory things like deciding not to expand a road like that's an easy not an easy decision well, it to should make, be it should be easy <laughs> you don't need a ton of people to get on board with not expanding a road mm. and parking as well i think you could change a number of the things in terms of parking rules without 
getting tons of people up in arms and angry and battling you about it. Mm -hmm. But there is another section, because as you mentioned, he is not talking about getting rid of cars. He's talking about putting them in their place. Right. And he does have a section where he talks about a step too far pedestrian zones. And that's one of the things that I like about this book. And one of the things that caught me off guard as I read throughout, he's very pragmatic. He's cautioning against any sorts of extreme behaviors. I, and I think many people who are kind of on the same page about wanting walkable places are big fans of pedestrian zones. But he talks about how dangerous it is to pedestrianize a place without the correct environment and structures in place to allow it to be successful. Uh And then you just get a dead ghost town of a little place. And that is another way that you can kill your downtowns. You can build a giant highway through it, or you can pedestrianize it, make it so that no one can get to it and kill it. Or just not make it walkable in the other ways that he talks about in this book. Right. Yeah, yeah, exactly. And if you don't make it walkable, like then you defeat the purpose. Right. That's what I thought was cool about all of his steps. Well, it's a sort of a step program. You basically need all 10 steps in order for Mm. you to create a walkable community. I, I think there can be the argument made that you might only need nine uh, or eight at the at like the very very least, but really all of these are pretty essential. And um, the transition between a place that's not walkable to a place that's walkable is a really interesting conversation that I think we should totally have. Yes, but to your point, you can't just plop a pedestrian zone down and be like, "All right, go, go ahead." Right, right. It absolutely needs the other things. You can't. It can't just just be a place for walking. It yeah, needs to be more. And you're right. I think you do need a lot of these steps. And I like how he laid it out because I agree that. While you need most of them, you should start with step one. And when you get to step 10, by the time you're really focused on taking care of step 10, you should already be pretty well into being a walkable place. Mm-hmm. You can't start with those later steps. It, it really is put in order of succession. Yeah. I think we should just move into step two. How does that sound? Yeah. So step two is mix the uses, which to my mind kind of makes intuitive sense. Right. You find a lot of downtowns are largely businesses. That's why they're called central business districts. And obviously people in large part have moved out to the suburbs. And separating people from the things that people want to do, whether it's work or movie theaters or shopping malls or parks, that doesn't make any sense. And I think pretty much everybody would be in agreement with that. There are a few people that really think that that's backwards or something. Mm -hmm. Yeah. You're saying intuitive sense, meaning like if we don't have to go two miles down the road to get groceries and then two miles down the road to go to the hardware store and then two miles down the road to get home, if we could just do that all in one block, then we wouldn't have to drive. And if we lived in a walkable place, then it would be easy. I think that's kind of what he's getting at here. Like imagine a kind of ideal world where you live out in the countryside in a 10-story building. And that 10-story building just has every shop you ever want to go to (laughs) along with your office. That's ideal. You don't really want to get into a car for an hour to go someplace. You just walk up the stairs. And this mixing the uses gets you obviously not there, but closer to that, right? It costs more energy, time, and resources when you have to go farther away to do things. So the more you can have a mix of things to where you do things around you, the better that is. Right, exactly. Yeah. But I think historically, we got into problems with this because of industry and industrial uses. Like I remember when we both studied in France, some of the people talked to me about the reason why the Southwest was the more popular and wealthier places to live and the northeast was the poorer places to live was because the winds tended to blow east and northward 
in Paris. And so all of the factories, all of their emissions blew up there. So no rich people wanted to live in the path of all of the emissions. And that's kind of this old historical industrial thing that still endures. And I think for mixing the uses, we began 100 years ago to separate out houses and things from factories because you die if you just have soot coming into your house, right? Like nobody wants that. And that's terrible. But once industry started to shift and change from being this kind of heavy emitting, heavy industry into office jobs and shops and other things of that nature, we didn't revert back to mixing everything into a city wherever you wanted to Mm. be. We already had kind of more strict regulations around where Mm. you could place what kinds of things. That's super interesting. I didn't know that about France. Cool. Learn something new today. Yeah. <laughs> but yeah, I mean, it makes sense. I think the only thing we would want to separate out at this point would be sort of really intense heavy use industrial. Right. Not have that downtown. <laughs> Everything else like light industrial, maybe it maybe it could stay. Basically I'm 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 all for anything staying as long as it doesn't hurt the people around it, I think I'm totally okay with it. Yeah, I mean nowadays most industry runs on electricity, right? Most things are electrically based. When these regulations started to be put in place, when people started to die from these sorts of things, these pollutants, it was when everybody had steam power and everybody was burning coal in the middle of town and things like that. Like industry has cleaned up enormously over the last hundred years and things have changed fundamentally. This is just kind of the lagging of our thinking on these things. We need to progress in our thinking and all of this will improve. Mm Mm-hmm. One thing I did want to mention, too, is that when he talks about mixed uses, he does have a a small part of his chapter that talks about inclusionary zoning, meaning in order to build affordable housing in a city, you know, a way that you can do that is by including below market rate units, either in a building, a Mm. new building that's being built, or you use some of the money made from that building, and then you put that money into another building somewhere else that is low-income housing or affordable housing somewhere else in the city. A lot of cities do this, and they sometimes give developers the choice between which one they want to do. He doesn't talk about it in this book, but I think there are other studies out there that talk about how it's good to have also not just mixed use, but also sort of mixed income buildings in order to also create sort of not exclusive neighborhoods. Because if you think about sure. it, if you just put, you know, there needs to sort of be a, along sort of with our, our discussion about taxes and taxation around cities. I think that sort of spreading out incomes throughout the city, not necessarily like a sort of a forced control coercion, like there has to be mixed income everywhere. But I think that a lot of mixed income buildings can do a lot of good for community character and health rather than just having this is the rich part of the city and this is the poor part of the city. Inclusionary zoning can be a way to create that while also providing housing for people who need it at that point in their lives. And so I just wanted to point out that inclusionary zoning is awesome and amazing. Your city most likely has exclusionary zoning. There's a lot of studies that also point to the fact that exclusionary zoning actually creates more homeless in the streets or or creates more hardship for people trying to find housing, creates more pressure for people on sort of mid and lower market units, just all around sort of a bad thing when it comes to city health. So I'm glad that he uh, included that in this this section. I just wanted to point it out to definitely not miss that part. Sure. Yeah, I'm I'm less enamored with that particular right portion i I think there's a large disincentive that is derived like the problems with rent controls and the problems with large zoning restrictions that prevent people from building new buildings are that you don't have enough houses for people which drives up prices for everyone else and the sort of thing that inclusionary zoning if not done extremely well could do is while you get a benefit for some people you also 
reduce the general housing stock because there's less of a reason to build houses or build buildings. And you also potentially harm other people by restricting access in certain areas, right? It's it's a questionable thing. My issue with these things, as I said before, like it's extremely complicated. Cities and zoning laws and things like that, you have so many different factors running around and overlapping that to implement a policy that is going to be consistently effective seems extremely difficult. So generally, I think a light touch with things like that is ideal. You know, I... I agree, but I think that there are certain places where we might have to compromise. For me, that's making sure that everyone has a home and that everyone can afford a home. So that's why I'm a huge proponent of inclusionary zoning. I think that I, I'm willing to sort of not necessarily make bad policy off the fact that we can give somebody a home, but make maybe more slightly controlling policy than we need. I'm okay with this sort of one-size-fit-all policy, but I think there's ways to adjust the inclusionary zoning policies four cities, but I think that every city should have it. And that's a reasonable stance to have. It doesn't necessarily have to be like maybe in in, in Manhattan, it should be like 35% of the building should be affordable housing, but I don't think that necessarily should go for another place. I don't know. You know, I'm making up those numbers. I'm just saying that the percentage to which, because usually it's done in percents, right? this X percent of the building needs to be affordable or X percent of the money from the building needs to go to an affordable housing complex. And so to me, that can be adjusted up or down, depending on especially the needs of the time, right? If you don't have a housing crisis in your city, number one, you're lucky. But number two, we don't have to necessarily have a a huge percentage of the new development stock be affordable. Right. I just this is a bit of a tangent, but I just stand more on the side of if you're having a housing crisis, incentivize building more houses. Right. And, and, you know, this doesn't necessarily incentivize building more houses. It's essentially a kind of tax on construction. Yeah, but the the developers are going to make enough money. I, I don't know. I mean, we're, we're going to go down a rabbit hole here. We are. But I think are. it's good that we disagree because we agree a lot on this show. And I knew this might have been a point of contention. But like, yeah. I think what's funny is sort of to, to Jeff Speck's point, he talks about it. It talks about what you just said about how it kind of could potentially stifle construction. But he says in some cases, let me just read it. He said that, in fact, this has never necessarily stifled development, meaning inclusionary zoning. But he doesn't offer a lot of data points to back that up. I'm just going to say that I think that the buildings will be built anyway, regardless, and that if it's really that if it's really that high demand, that'll be it'll be built. We can move on. We can t- we can do an entire episode about inclusionary. We'll zoning. have to get into housing policy at some point. Yeah, at some point, we definitely definitely will. But now, yes. step three, my step favorite three. part. Your favorite part is get the parking right. Mm-hmm. So, what did you love about this chapter, John? Just everything <laughs> and everything that I hadn't thought about. I really appreciate in a book when there's something that I viscerally disagree with, and having someone walk you through and break down your kind of preconceived notions and your beliefs that you held before and show you that you're obviously wrong. And one of these things is I'm from Los Angeles. I hate paying for parking. I think free parking is a great thing, or at least I thought free parking was a great thing. But he articulates rather effectively some of the enormous costs that are involved in providing free parking for everyone everywhere. And the enormous societal kind of weight that parking adds to a city's economic situation. Mm -hmm. And one of the things that I think was just so powerful about it was when he talks about if you're building a shopping center and you wanted to put underground parking because there's not enough space to put in a massive parking lot around it, 
that that will, in many cases, double the cost of the shopping center. So just building the parking spaces, which are not nice, it's not a place you want to spend time, it's not a thing that really adds much value to anybody going to the shopping mall. It costs the same as the entirety of the shopping mall. That is shocking Mm -hmm. and and appalling Mm -hmm. to a certain extent. And it ends up putting the cost on the consumers of the shopping mall. Right, um, right. Because the parking is free, quote unquote, but they've really just spread the cost of the parking onto all of the products within the store in order to pay for the parking structure, which usually costs in the millions. Because if you think about it, let's say that mall or whatever is in a place with high land value, then you're essentially creating this free commodity on land that actually costs a lot of money. So somehow you have to pay for it. Well, that means that the people who go in and, and purchase from the store end up paying for it. It works out in theory, except that it ends up costing way more for the parking structure than you could ever make back in purchases from the stores. Plus, a lot of times it's the city itself that spreads that cost onto other people, yeah. even those who don't drive. I mean, that's that's the other thing. If you bike and walk and take public transit everywhere, you're still paying for parking in a city because you're paying for street parking, because you're paying for public parking structures, because the cost of that free parking moves on to you in some other way, either in slightly higher taxes or slightly higher consumer prices or whatever. It doesn't matter. You can't escape it. And also the crazy thing is a lot of cities have minimum parking requirements. That's the other thing that got to me. Yeah. Meaning that parking is required. This is essentially if you don't drive, Most of the buildings have minimum parking requirements, so you are required to pay for people's driving, like required. Beyond even that, different types of businesses that are very similar will often have substantially different parking requirements. This gets into the problems that you see when a city is pretty much already built. And let's say a barbershop goes out of business and you want to open up a convenience store. Well, if the convenience store requires two extra parking spots, You can't open a convenience store because you can't create more space. You can't tear down another building. So you just can't open that because there's not enough space to put in more parking. He describes several examples where people might want to open a business, but if you're converting from a restaurant to a bar or if you're converting from any number of things to something else that requires more parking, suddenly now you can't open your business. And so in a lot of places, what you're going to find is when you see these empty shops, it's not just that somebody can't find a business that will be successful in that location. It's that they can't legally open their business because Mm -hmm. of zoning restrictions that would require them to build new things. Right. That's the sort of thing that I think just grates on people. I I find it very, very problematic. Yeah. What's crazy about that is now you have, if you think about it, not only can the the business owner not open what they want to open, but now that part of the block has an empty storefront. And empty storefronts, if they're there for long enough, can start to drag down prices and value of the other things around it, which in turn could essentially kick out more businesses. It could lead to more blight or it creates blight if there's like, I don't know, some sort of some store on a giant block that needed more parking and they couldn't fill it. Yeah. Or a smaller business, like a bunch of smaller businesses want to move into a bigger building, but there's just too much parking. I I guess I'm just I'm just trying to think of different scenarios where that building isn't able to be filled in with something. And as we'll get into sort of the safe, comfortable, and interesting walk to create walkable areas, you want to have as much packed into as small of a space, not necessarily as possible, but you know, in smaller spaces. And to do that, parking minimums like this don't allow for more businesses to come in and yeah. don't allow for the mixed uses that we were just talking about. They don't allow for the flexibility. Right, right, exactly. And so that's like the economic angle to it. I guess what I'm trying to say is that for city health, for block health, for wanting to walk around and creating this walkable, great community that you and I have understood that we love, 
Um, it's impossible to do that when your businesses and your homes have to conform to these parking minimums. Yeah. And being required to have enough parking to satisfy what you need at kind of your busiest means that the vast majority of the time, mm-hmm. most businesses are going to be wasting a lot of space. Mm-hmm. And if you think about how expensive your house would be, if you also had to provide buy the same amount of land that your house is on in order to put up a parking lot, that's what you're dealing with the business. You're talking about like an enormously expensive drain on the business. And that is harmful for everyone that interacts with it and the entire economy. The other thing, there is another part of this chapter that actually probably the part that I found most compelling. And it compares two cities that I'm very familiar with that are down in Los Angeles near where I lived. And these are Pasadena and Westwood. And essentially, he talks about how both of these places were kind of struggling in the last few decades for various reasons. They're both pretty nice, pretty thriving places, I would say. But Pasadena started putting charges on their previously free parking in the city. And they started to find that as they raised the prices, suddenly people could get parking whenever they wanted. And it raised a huge amount of money for the city. And a lot of their kind of nice downtown area saw a revival over the last 15 years that they've done this. Westwood, on the other hand, while it's not by any means a bad place, it's a very nice place. It's a very nice part of Los Angeles, very expensive part of Los Angeles. But they have free parking. And he essentially cites this study that found that in Westwood, this very nice part of town close to the largest university in Los Angeles, the vast majority of the traffic on the streets there, where it's at all times of the day pretty much endlessly congested, is because people are looking for parking. And so it's not even that you're having issues of traffic and you're having issues because there's not enough parking, so you think, oh, we should have more parking. But because parking is free, people don't want to give up parking spots. And everyone is driving around looking for parking endlessly, which creates a huge amount of traffic for everyone else, which creates Mm -hmm. a huge amount of pollution and noise Mm -hmm. and makes it frustrating for anybody that's trying to drive anywhere. Fixing parking helps relieve traffic and helps make other things work better. And this is why I think parking is so key. Parking is kind of this hidden thing that gets into everything. And if it works well, then it's fine. And if it works badly, it just clogs up everything Mm -hmm. else. I find so much of this chapter and the one about putting cars in their place is just, it's it's just a Rube Goldberg of one force creates another force, creates another force, Mm, creates another force. And to me, it also, this also smacks of a deuce demand. So really it just comes back to like, you know, you build more parking, more people are going to want to park there, which causes more traffic. You build wider freeways where people are going to want to drive on the freeways, which causes more traffic. The problem is, is that it's quote unquote free. As we've discussed, it's not really, but because people see it as free and because the ubiquity of cars, everyone's going to decide to take that route, which ends up just being bad for everyone. It's a crazy system. Yeah. And over the years, I've found many, many times that I've not wanted to go to a certain place or a certain part of town right. because I'm like, right. I can't find parking there. Right. I'm not going to bother with all of the trouble of driving around for half an hour trying to find parking. Right. And that's my issue is that a lot of times businesses will get really mad at cities for wanting to take out their free parking or put in a bus stop or put in like a tram in front of their businesses. Like they'll say, okay, we, we, you know, they'll come to the business and say, we want to take out just two parking spots. You'll have, you'll still have two, but we want to take out two for this tram. 
And they'll fight it. They'll think, no, 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 people are not going to want to come to our place if they can't just park in front of the building. But to me, I, I never understood that because, you know, if, if one tram stops in front of your business, even if like half the tram, maybe even a quarter of the tram can go to your um, of people who want to go to your business, that's way more than two full cars. Right. And most right. times it's not two full cars who are coming. It's like two people driving individually and the others have to drive down the block. And you're right. A lot of times people are like, no, nah, I don't want to go because the parking is so terrible. Well, if you don't have to worry about the parking, you're going to go. I mean, right. I I think that's something that I realized when I was living in Paris was just, I didn't think about that. My thought was, well, how long is it going to take to get there? Not what's it going to be like when I get there? Yeah. And that speaks to sort of the, the transit issues that we'll talk about. But like, you know, you, you just want to eliminate barriers to getting people to go places. And parking is one of those ways, of, you know, reducing the amount of parking or not making it free is one of the ways you can do that. Yeah, absolutely. Cool. So let's move on to step four, which is let transit work. And this one is, it's pretty straightforward. We've talked a lot about why we think public transit is great and what's so good about it. He kind of just doubles down on that. But I think the thing that I wanted to highlight, the one, sort of my one big takeaway is that you can't design an unwalkable place around transit. Mm. You have to let the transit design the place. Because only then will people be incentivized to actually take it. For example, sometimes you'll see a metro or a subway, at least in the US, it'll, it'll sort of mirror or, or run parallel to a freeway. And the stop will be in the center of a freeway or just to the side of the freeway. And then that'll be connected to suburbs around it. And so that's not designing the neighborhood or the community around the transit. It's designing the, the transit around the community. So It's like how the metro is in LA. Right, exactly. So yes, those neighborhoods are being served by transit. They do have access to it. But I always find it crazy. You still have to drive to that subway. Right. So then you still have to build the parking structures, which we were just talking about is not a good idea for that subway. And it also means that it's still not car optional. Right, exactly. And it's still not car optional because most likely if you're still having to drive to it, then it's not walkable, it's not bikeable to it. Right. And so to me, that was kind of what he doubled down on was that you don't put the metro parallel to a freeway. You put it right in the heart of downtown. You put it right in the heart of like sort of a, a, a residential neighborhood. It's crazy when you look at the differences in neighborhoods between ones that are, are really well served by transit and just kind of just underground, but in the middle of it, or really well served by buses or something. Mm -hmm. People can just walk to it. I, I recently moved to a place where I can just walk directly to my bus, but yeah. I can't walk to, to the subway. I can't walk to, to the metro. And you know, while it's slightly cheaper for me to take that metro to work, it, it totally disincentivizes me from actually going to it because I just can't, I just can't get there. Right. And I would have to drive, but then parking is like 10 bucks for the whole day. Exactly. It defeats the whole purpose. Yeah, right. It just defeats the, it just defeats the purpose. It's way too expensive. It takes way too much time. Plus, I'm probably not going to find a parking spot. That was kind of my takeaway from this chapter. Beyond sort of public transit is good. It's like, okay, so if we know public transit is good, then how do we implement that in our cities? What do we need to do? Right. And this is where his pragmatism is useful, because I think a lot of people like us, from our perspective, look at Asian or European metro systems and say, well, let's do something like that. But our cities in the United States and cities in many parts of Latin America and Australia and all around the world are not ready for that. They're not in that place. It's hard to see how to get Los Angeles to be Tokyo, right? Like the <laughs> path there is not clear. Mm -hmm. And he does go through some very practical steps of things that you can do and how to think about some of these things. Like he walks through bus rapid transit and some different bright points of using buses as opposed to using mm -hmm. metros mm -hmm. and like the cost benefit analysis of some of these things and streetcars. Like I had never really thought before this book 
about streetcars because I've never really interacted a lot with streetcars. I've never lived in a place with a lot of streetcars. But he makes a very compelling argument around how streetcars can extend a walkable area. So if you can mm-hmm. walk around an area, you can use a streetcar to extend that walkable area. Nobody's going to take the streetcar commuting long distances, but it's not designed for commuting long distances. It's designed so that if you have a nice four block walkable area, now you have a six block walkable area. And that's mm-hmm. great. And mm-hmm. for transit, because it is so expensive and it is such a big permanent investment, really thinking about how each of these types of transit interact and how each of them are best used is useful. I mean, you can't just say transit is great and build a subway in every town in America. You have to think about what works in what setting. Right. And he does right. walk through that quite nicely. Yeah, I've increasingly come around to the idea of buses as sort of the main mode of transportation for cities, especially cities that are not big enough yet for subways, trams, metros, whatever you want to call Mm. them. They're cheap and easily changeable. So as a city grows, you can just adjust the bus route. Well, and that is especially the nice thing about buses, the changeable factor. Mm -hmm. Because Mm -hmm. if you're looking at a city like Los Angeles, which I am going to always harp on because I left it because of how it was built. You know what I mean? Like that's such a potent thing in my mind. When you look at a city like that, if you want to gradually make parts of it at least more walkable, you have to start to say, well, you can't lay down all of the infrastructure now because you're not going to be getting a nice metro system to be able to function well when it's Mm -hmm. so sprawling. But as you start to move that direction, you can gradually make better and better use of buses and you can Mm -hmm. change them as you improve over the course of the next 20 years. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. And and that is extremely useful because you don't necessarily want to build a metro all the way out into big giant suburbs just gradually adjust the bus system to function ideally. Yeah. yeah. I think I think the general rule is if you are driving to your public transit, you're doing it wrong. <laughs> yeah. Yes. Um, that's, that's, that's just not the point. So next up is the safe walk. Right. So this is, I think, pretty straightforward. We talked about it a little bit last time. It's made up of two steps, protect the pedestrian and welcome bikes. Yep. Did you have any big takeaways from this? This one was just super, I don't want to say intuitive because a lot of this book like sort of reversed how I thought about things. Yeah. So it's not necessarily intuitive, but it is just, you know, you got to just make people feel safe while they're walking or biking around. I mean, whenever I whenever I say, hey, let, let's bike to this place or why do we need to drive? Let's like take public transit. People hmm. say, I don't feel safe. And that is a huge, huge roadblock. And yeah. I hate biking in places where I don't feel safe as a biker. And I know the statistics out there are just how crazy it is for people who, who don't take, who don't take cars. To me, the, you know, he just lays out reasons for why it's better how it saves lives um and honestly at at this point i feel like we can like gloss over this chapter a little bit Mm. but i think that it's important to just point out that i mean it goes without saying but increasing the safety of pedestrians and biking um, by deprioritizing cars and creating sort of like bike lanes and 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 reducing the amount of speed that that people you know go on streets directly saves lives and if you want to talk about something that you and your community can do to actively save lives it's this. And, the, and and most people would jump on those sorts of policy decisions, but it just doesn't happen because we're so in love with our cars. That's kind of what just got to me here. Yeah, I just wanted to mention two things in particular about it. One thing is that something that I didn't necessarily internalize before I read this book was the fact that the best way to make pedestrians safer and make pedestrians feel safer is to slow down cars. Right. So anything else that you do, like adding additional sidewalks or even trees as barriers between the sidewalk and pedestrians, like just slow down the cars and then people will not be terrified. And then when you're crossing the street, you won't be afraid because this guy is going at 60 miles an hour and you think he might hit you. 
So slow down cars. One of the other things about that is narrowing lanes, I find to be an extremely compelling solution to a lot of this Mm -hmm. because it makes crossing the street faster. Like I was in Belfast recently and they have really wide lanes on these big roads going through their downtown. And it was such a stark comparison to Dublin because whenever I try to cross the street, there might not even be a car coming when I start. And by the time I get across, I feel like I'm about to die because six cars are on top of me. That's a sign that the streets are too wide and the lanes are too wide within the street and the cars are going too fast. Because if you can't see somebody when you start and then by the time you're across, you're feeling like you're going to die, you're not feeling safe. And then on bikes, really my takeaway was separate bikes from the road. Separate bikes from pedestrians if you can and separate them especially from cars. Like pedestrians can function with cars. Bikes cannot really function with cars in the same way. People are parking on the bike lane. Taxis are pulling over in the bike lane. It's really hard for a bicyclist to be consistently safe when they're in the midst of cars. If you separate them out, they'll feel much more relaxed. They'll be able to bike much more relaxedly. There will be less getting hit. And like you said, when somebody asks you and you're like, hey, let's bike to someplace and they feel endangered, it's because they have to bike on four lane roads with a bunch of cars that they feel like are going to hit them. They had separated Mm -hmm. off bike lanes. It would feel dramatically safer and dramatically nicer. Yeah, I mean, it's just, it's it's kind of as simple as that. And there are so many cities around the world that really do this well, and they're constantly looked to. But I feel like I feel like we could we could implement this everywhere as long as there's just the political will. And it's relatively cheap, like compared to building right. highways and things, right. building bike paths. So right. cheap. Yeah. And you can even do it without putting any infrastructure in. You can make a, a protected bike path that instead of so instead of having the, the parking for cars hugging the curb, you actually put the bike lane hugging the curb and you park your cars sort of between you go as like road, parked cars, and then the bike lane. So right. the cars themselves actually become the barrier. Costs no money. All you put is paint down. True. Very true. And also one other thing about bikes, just real quick, bike lanes have a much greater carrying capacity than car lanes do. So like from a space standpoint, like we always talk about how space is so limited in cities and it's such a expensive thing in a city to have good space. Bike paths, you can fit a lot of people on a very small amount of space. Cars take up a huge amount of space. I have never heard of a Dutch person who lives in Amsterdam saying, oh no, we have too much bike traffic. We need to widen the bike lanes. Like I've never, I've never heard. Maybe, maybe they have, but I have not heard Uh, that. No, I haven't heard that either. To your point, to your point. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, that was, that's kind of step five and step six. Yes. Yes. Yeah. I mean, definitely check him out. Read. He has all this good stuff about the benefits of biking, but I think we kind of talked about sort of the the main takeaways from the chapter. Yeah. There's a lot of nuance there, but the thrust of it is, you know, Mm -hmm. do that. (laughs) Right. (laughs) Okay. So on to the comfortable walk and step seven and step eight. So the thing about comfortable walk for me is it's hard to put like a clear numerical number on the benefits of this, but I think that the benefits in some ways, I don't want to say outweigh the others, but they're really incredibly important. Making your cities yes. a place that you not only feel safe and that it feels useful to walk around, but it feels interesting and it feels comfortable and it feels cozy and it feels like home to just be in your city is so, so important. I mean, if you think about it, I think a lot of the times when we move around a city, you think about, I just want to get from point A to point B. 
but why not have the journey also be interesting and also be fun? And that was something that that we, I think, really experienced when we first moved to Paris was this city, true. as amazing as it is for all the monuments and historical things that it has and all the fun stuff to do, the city itself is also a reason to go, if not the reason to go. Yeah, it's unbelievable just wandering around. Right. And this goes not just for Paris, but for a lot of other cities too. But that was sort of my awakening to it was, you know, I'm kind of bored today. What should I do? Oh, let's just choose a random metro stop and go walk around. Right. I've never done that at home, partially because of the difficulty in which it takes to get to places, but also just because walking around just wasn't fun because it was sort yeah. of American style suburbs or, you know, long blocks and all these issues that we've talked about. But like, it was just comfortable and fun to walk around. And that's what he talks about when when you shape your spaces, that's one of his steps and you make them, you know, sort of tiny and, and mixed use and, and walkable and the blocks are smaller. It's great. It's great. Yeah. It just it just induces these types of communities. Yeah, you're right. As you said, there aren't necessarily numbers associated with these things. They're not very measurable. And it's because you're going kind of from utility, from having something be useful and safe, where you can measure how many people are dying and you can measure, you know, how far do you have to go to get do a thing that you need to get done to mm -hmm. kind of the enjoyment side, the making walking pleasant, making it something that you want to do as opposed to just a task. Like if you have to go to the grocery store, you're going to go to the grocery store. Mm -hmm. But wandering down a street that you've never been down, like if that is a pleasant enough experience to draw you in, that's when your city is truly becoming walkable. Because mm -hmm. it's not just that you can walk, but you want to walk. Mm -hmm. That's when living there and being in that space is enjoyable. Like that's what you really want. And right, you're right, shaping right. the spaces. I hadn't thought a ton about the size of blocks and things before, but it makes obvious sense that when you're dealing with kind of smaller spaces, smaller areas that you can manage. Like I mm -hmm. remember when I first moved to China and I was living in Beijing, when you go out to Tiananmen Square in the heart of Beijing, it's just this giant, empty, concrete square. And it's a little unnerving to be out there. It's not pleasant. It's too massive. It's yeah. too... It's not built at a human scale. No, no, it very much is not. And while it's kind of impressive in a certain sense, you definitely don't want to spend a lot of time there because mm -hmm. it's just a little unnerving, mm -hmm. especially when it's empty. And you contrast that with the smaller streets, I imagine, of like exactly. older Beijing or like yes. or, or, or Rome or old New York or whatever. Right, where you're walking down an alley and there's just mm -hmm. people cooking food mm -hmm. and there's mm -hmm. street vendors and things. And it's a completely different experience where mm -hmm. you're kind of feeling more enclosed and more right. engaged with what's around you. Right. And that, that gets to his point. I, I think Von Vocab that I picked up from this book was he is a, a part of the step nine where he talks about sticky versus slippery edges of a city. Mm. And I think that's such a great way to think about it because cities are giant puzzle pieces in ways. And if you have edges that stick together, then it, you're going to want to go from, from one to the other. Whereas if you have edges right. that sort of slip off and they feel like they're at the edge of the earth, you're not going to want to, you're not going to want to cross. And what's crazy is humans are real lazy and we don't even <laughs> want to cross a slippery edge of a block or two. If you build yeah. a giant parking structure, so all those issues with parking we just talked about, another one is like you build a giant parking structure, people aren't going to want to walk past the giant parking structure to go no. to the store down the road. They're going to want to drive to it. So then you are inducing more driving. Yeah. And before we skip on to step nine, I just wanted to mention something from step oh. eight. Step eight is plant trees. Oh, yeah. And I'm a big lover of trees in cities. I've talked about it a little bit before, but he talks about a number of things in terms of the significance of trees, but the shade they provide, the greenery, the kind of mental relaxation that they provide. Mm -hmm. If you've ever been in Manhattan and walk down a street that's just concrete and glass buildings and things, you kind of know the austereness that that is. And having living things around you 
can just relieve your mental state a lot. And that obviously is great in parks and essential in parks, but having the whole city be more pleasant in terms of having trees around is really important. Right, right. It's crazy important. Yeah. I mean, we could harp on the benefits of, of trees all day, but There's I lots. think... lots, yeah. Yeah, there, there are so many. But I think one of the things that he talks about, maybe not necessarily in here, but one of the things he talks about, at least at some point, is the fact that like humans want to feel sort of enclosed and cozy and nice. Mm. And, and trees provide that. You know, providing that yeah. canopy is crucial. To me, it feels almost like it almost feels homey in a way, you know, when you walk into your home and you've designed it the way that you want and, and it and it, it feels it just feels good to, to be around things that are above you and around you. And, and it it's gives more, a character. It gives a texture. Right. It's more interesting to look at. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. And I feel like trees are a great, honestly, cheap and easy way to do it. I would much rather, you know, I feel like it's much cheaper to pay for like full time arborists than try to build some sort of structures to make it feel that way sure and not only that but it they, you know they clean up your air and they provide shade and the shade also provides cost savings for businesses and housing around it because especially in the summer you don't have to worry about you know if, if you can shade your house then you don't have to use as much in energy and that True. reduces your energy bill cost but also reduces the cost on the environment while also producing more carbon sinks you know which which are and it reduces the heat sink effect or the heat right effect. right that too that too that too which is also extremely important as climate change gets worse you know cities become these giant sort of hotbeds, literal hotbeds. Mm. And I'm, I'm pretty sure like in Miami or something, it actually intensifies storms around the city because the city is warmer than the areas around it. So it like right. draws it, you know, it, it draws it, it in. Yeah, it draws it in. Um, and so by planting more trees, you then reduce the overall temperature of the city, which could lessen the storms. And just again, Rube Goldberg, like, that's what I keep getting out of all of this is just one decision snowballs into others, yeah. either good or bad. And it's all about prioritizing the good things. Well, and th when things are so interrelated and everything affects everything else so much, shifting one factor has all, you're right, all of these downstream effects on everything else that's involved. And really, I, I just want to emphasize again what you said about shade. The quality of life of living in a really hot place, like being, again, from the Los Angeles area, <laughs> when you don't have good trees, mm -hmm. You don't want to walk anywhere in the summer. So mm -hmm. to have a place be walkable, you need trees. If you're going to sweat and it's going to be incredibly unpleasant if you go outside, mm -hmm. you don't go outside mm -hmm. and you get in your car immediately and hit the air conditioning. And so having trees, having it be nice to walk around in a place like Miami, in a place like Los Angeles, even in a place like New York in the summer, you need that. If you don't have that, it's just suffering. And I mean, New York gets out of it a little bit because they have such tall buildings that mm -hmm. the buildings provide enough shade. But in most places, you really right. need that. Yeah, we could do a whole thing on shade too because a lot of people actually hate the fact that buildings create shade. But right. yeah, right, absolutely. But on to step nine. Yeah, on to step nine. The interesting walk is the last part. Step nine right. is make friendly and unique faces, which is kind right. of, I think, what you were getting at with the living room feel. Yeah, I mean, it, it's just, yeah. He just talks about how you want an interesting place to walk around in. You want to see different things. And what's crazy to me is like different things can be a really, it doesn't have to be that large of a change. So for example, like Paris, when I first got there, I always would get lost because all the streets look the same. A lot yeah. of the buildings are basically these giant, well, not, I know they're not giant. They felt giant at the time, but you know, they're these six story buildings buildings with the wrought iron balconies and then they have like little planters in them and they all kind of have relatively the same architecture. It's very similar. Right, which I love. They're all from the same period. But I would always get turned around, but it was still really interesting to look at these buildings that were 
very, very similar because each person who lived in all of the apartments brought their own uniqueness to each of them. Mm. And also they were slightly different enough from building to building that it would still be cool to look at. Plus the fact that they looked pretty, like the architecture was also nice help. But I guess what I'm trying to say is you don't have to have radically different architecture for every single building throughout a block and throughout a city in order for it to be interesting to look at. You just have to have like little changes and have it still be aesthetically pleasing. And I think for people, you know, there's always that debate, especially amongst people who are part of HOAs, like, do you want a place to all look uniform and therefore bring out the beauty that way? Or do you want them to be different enough that it's interesting and that you find the beauty in the difference? I don't know which right. one is the answer, but I think that either way you go, there's still a way to do it without feeling like sort of a hellscape of just the same cookie cutter building over and over and over. It can look terrible as single family homes and it can look terrible as apartment buildings. Very true. That's what I was getting out of this. Because he talks about yeah. architects and all these people that just want to create the same thing over and over and it just is not good and you don't have to do much to to not do that to avoid it i guess what i took away i mean you're you're right about all of that and what i would kind of describe what you're talking about as the fabric of the place you're right you can have rotterdam where you have all sorts of random crazy buildings or you can have paris where it's relatively uniform but it's still interesting and it's still compelling in a certain respect Uh but both of those places have a fabric to it right they have this kind of thing that you think of when you think of the place and it all fits together and it all is this continual thing Mm -hmm. it is interesting when he talks about star architects in this chapter because star architects are people who are very famous architects they build very famous buildings like the bilbao museum or what have you Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. um and what's interesting about this chapter is that he talks about how buildings fit into that texture, right? Fit into that larger context and fit into that fabric of the city. And and that's, I think, the important part of it, that things that stick out and things that don't work, like, and it's hard to describe, like, this is not the kind of thing, this is, again, why I'm so resistant to a lot of really heavy-handed government intervention, because you can't dictate from on high what the fabric is going to be. And you can't dictate from on high how the city should really be formed. Like you can lay out a street plan if you want and things like that, and that's fine. But if you're dictating how every building should look or how every building should feel and how it should all fit, like you've mentioned to me before that one of the things that makes a city really interesting is how it grows and buildings become interesting because of how they relate to other buildings around them and how they're different and the different eras Mm -hmm. that they were built in and all of that. Mm -hmm. And that's the sort of thing that you can't dictate and you can't Mm -hmm. really control Mm -hmm. you just have to allow it to develop so this is one of the ones where it's less actionable it's harder to really say how you implement this but it is important just to understand and note right agree i think we could have an entire podcast about the benefits of sort of nudges in a certain direction versus how controlling it should be true because i think to your point this is one last part and because i know it well i'll I'll go back to it but you know paris was created at least modern day paris a lot of it was created by this guy named baron von hosman and he's sort of the one who created the large boulevards and the architecture behind how it looks restructured the whole city right right that is i mean he bulldozed so much of that city in order to create it in the image that he wanted and people love it today. We, you know, we all love it. What's crazy to me is that is an example of heavy-handed, probably way too intrusive government control, but like it created a cool city. I don't know. I mean, I'm, this, this is not the time to do it, but I At just... the same time that he did that, <laughs> what he did was kind of what New York did when they laid out the street plan, right? Right. He with... laid out these boulevards. He didn't dictate all the buildings that should be built along them. I, I don't I mean, know. certainly it's, it's, it's they did do things style. in terms of 
they did things in terms of height restrictions and you're, you're right. It was definitely more heavy handed than I would. <laughs> Again, uh, we should, we should have an it. entire, we should totally have a, we should have a podcast about this because yes. this would be, this would be super interesting to talk to you about it. Cause I think, I think we, we would disagree on the degree at which we would, we would want to see it, it, not, not say intervention, but like, we would but, definitely disagree. Yeah. Except I don't think either of us would agree that the way Hosman did it is the way we would want our cities to be done. Um, or Robert. For Moses different reasons York. though, I think. <laughs> No, <laughs> like, no, I think no. you'd I, be very concerned with the equity issues of tearing down people's houses. And I'd I mean, be very but, concerned with the general lack of <laughs> understanding that big planners that dictate things like that often have. Right. I mean, you know, I think I think we'd agree more than you than you think. But yeah, Maybe. we okay. we we'll see. We'll see. We'll we'll have to do it and, and, and see where we're at because I'd love to have that conversation with you. Either way, step ten cool. is pick your winners. Right. It's the last thing. And I, I found it interesting. I mean, it's kind of obvious to a certain extent, like a number of these things, but it is important to understand that when you're dealing with a city, again, we're starting from a very poor place in terms of walkability in the United States, especially in places like Los Angeles or Dallas. And so he talks about picking your winners and doing something he calls urban triage, where you have to find a few neighborhoods that are close to being walkable and work on them to make them walkable. Because you can't start with the worst neighborhoods and make them great. You're just not going to be able to. It's just not like it's not feasible from a cost benefit analysis. You should put your resources toward the places that are already closest to being functionally walkable and then try to connect those areas up and have them grow and expand as opposed to trying to sweep across the entirety of the city and really make it so that your resources do nothing because they're spread so thinly. Mm -hmm. I was convinced of it. Yeah, I found it a compelling argument. Yeah, I would say to qualify what you're saying there by Mm. worst areas of the city, I would say areas that are the least walkable rather than like right that's what i judgment yeah yeah just just wanted to qualify that because it's not like a judgment on the incomes of the area or whatever right some of the least walkable neighborhoods are like beverly hills you know what i mean like they're 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 (laughs) neighborhoods that are enormous houses that want a lot of privacy no more money for beverly hills yes i can get behind (laughs) that (laughs) Um, all right cool yeah I think like this book offers a really cool sort of in closing, you know, I think it offers a really cool blueprint on the benefits of transforming your city to make it more walkable and sort of just like the way to do it, but definitely gives you a lot of ammunition to combat people who think that it's a bad thing and that it wouldn't benefit them. And in fact, it really benefits not only them, but everyone. And I think it's helpful for opening people's minds up to things and thinking about things from a different context. Like it doesn't articulate everything that you need to know. There are a number of things that I care about in terms of city structure and city planning that it doesn't even address, but it does allow you to recalibrate and think in a different way, which is always a useful thing when you're reading something about important topics to just be able to think about them differently and approach them from a different angle. Yep. Awesome. Cool. Well, thank you so much for listening and I'll talk to you in two weeks. You want to sign us off, John? Yeah, you can find our show notes and probably I think we're going to put together a little executive summary. So if you want to kind of be able to review and look through some of the different points from the book on our website, subjectradio.com slash polis slash 007. And yeah, man, I will talk to you in two weeks. For sure. All right, man. Have a good one. All right. Bye.